Hello, and welcome to the ACUI podcast, the podcast produced by the ACUI to share insights into issues affecting you, the practicing physician, resident, fellow, and student. I'm Tim McNichol, Deputy Executive Director of the American College of Osteopathic okay. Internists. I'm pleased to have here with me today Dr. Mia Tormina. Uh, there is no better guest to have in these uncertain times than Dr. Tormina. She is a graduate of Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine and chair of the Department of Infectious Diseases and Travel Medicine at DuPage Medical Group in the Chicago suburbs. She's also chair of the Infection Control Task Force and COVID Response Team. She is an adjunct clinical faculty at Midwestern University Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine. Dr. Tormina is board certified in internal medicine and infectious diseases. I cannot begin to thank you enough for taking the time to join us today to talk about uh, COVID. Um, this virus is is impacting every aspect of American life, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to just kind of talk to you, uh, somebody who's really, really in the uh, depths of it all, and kind of get your take on it. So thank you so much for joining us. Tim, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I know, I know you're quite busy right now, uh, and it appears that the information surrounding COVID is literally changing by the day, uh, if not the hour. The making of this recording um, on March 21st, uh, we're looking at in the United States alone, over 15,000 confirmed cases, 200 deaths worldwide. Uh, we're looking at over 266,000 cases, 11,000 uh, deaths, and covering more than 183 countries. Back Back in February 25th, the United States Centers for Disease Control issued an alert urging uh, Americans to prepare for this. Uh, and just uh, about a week or so ago, on March 11th, the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic. Um, as an infectious disease specialist, what steps do you think physicians should be looking at as cases would be possibly coming through their doors and dealing with this, I, I would think, on a daily basis at this point? Sure. It's, uh, it's ironic that we're having this conversation today on March 21st. This is actually two months to the day of the very first case in the United States in Washington. So we're kind of looking at this now two months into this entire evolution. And uh, we're, we're nowhere, uh, not nowhere near, but we're not quite near a flattening of this curve. We're going to continue to see exponential growth in these cases. I think physicians, by and large, need to remain vigilant and they need to remain very open and very flexible to a lot of changing policies, procedures, and, and ways we're doing things at times like this. Uh, it is changing daily. Right now, I, depending on what type of physician group you work with, there may be modules set in place already for sick visits, well visits, hot sites, cold sites. There are facilities around our country that are moving towards uh, drive-through screenings, drive-through swab sites to try and minimize patient interactions. There is a troubling shortage of personal protective equipment, and that's something that is really irking those on the front lines, including primary care, immediate care centers, ERs, where we're really trying to work together to conserve our resources, conserve our PPE, um, and, and give the best patient care. One of the most important things at this time that we also need to remember is there are patients that need routine care. We don't want to miss a cancer. We don't want to miss uh, a heart disease issue that's going to progress to something greater. So we still need to have that availability for clinicians to safely see patients that need their routine care and 
cancer screenings and maintenance uh, at this time. So that's something that is a, a bit of a conundrum for primary care, trying to decide between pushing off uh, non-essential appointments, uh, moving to telemedicine, video visits for the safety of the patients, but making sure there is still that availability. And then in regards to the sick patients, trying to remember medicine first and all the medicine we've learned first, meaning that just because someone has a fever and flu-like symptoms, they may have a mild form of COVID, but not every single patient needs to be coming out and bogging down our facilities right. if they're otherwise stable, don't have comorbidities, um, and are sort of resting up at home and, and getting better day to day. These patients that are critical or have high risk of significant issues if they are COVID positive are the ones that we really need to focus our energies on. Right. And it sounds like one of the things that you're dealing with uh, on the front lines is really a balancing act uh, in terms of making sure that that patients are receiving the care that they need, whether it be uh, COVID related or, or like you said, just general uh, medical uh, treatment. How are you striking that balance with yourself right now? So from the beginning of this, um, in, in my area of town, we, we did start this COVID task force uh, two months ago, and we've been meeting nearly daily to try and optimize our workflow and try and give the best possible approaches to these patients to keep them safe. There were periods of time in, in recent weeks where we wanted to see everybody, and then there were periods of time where we wanted to physically see and examine hardly anyone, where we just wanted to do you know swabs on these patients and get them moving. So we're, we're to a point right now where we've sort of struck a balance between who is the sickest, who's at risk for decompensation, getting them into our sites that are fully prepared with the PPE that they're going to need to, to examine these patients, make a clinical judgment, and decide who should be sent off for COVID testing. So you're you're kind of uh, in in a uh, really interesting area because you're just outside of Chicago, um, and I believe Illinois uh, went to a process within the last few uh, last few days to kind of close things down a little bit in terms of uh, non-essential uh, activities and that type of thing. How important is it uh, that as a physician uh, that that is engaged, as you mentioned earlier, to really try to suppress the curve or uh, flatten the curve um, right now. I think it's of tremendous importance. Um, I do support the governor's decision to um, uh, provide a shelter in place. Um, you know, sort of command for the entire state of Illinois. Our Chicago public schools are, are out until um, April 7th or 8th, I believe. Actually, I think they extended mm -hmm. that out until April 20th. The shelter in place okay. is down until April 7th. But there's there's certainly rumor and talk about possibly having some of these non-essential businesses and schools where there's large um, congregations of people you know, sort of limited for weeks to come, right. um, you know, as we, as we in our, in our own facilities set up sort of hot sites and cold sites to keep, you know, patients separated who may be clinically ill or who may simply have routine healthcare needs. Um, you know, the, the question from our providers is for how long are we going to do this? And the answer is sort of until further notice, right. you know, we definitely look upon the CDC and other guidelines coming from top docs like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who can be quoted as saying that this is going to be necessary, the social distancing and possibly even the, the sheltering in place for several weeks to come. And I think that we have the possibility of being in a very different place a month from now if we all do our part.
And so it's a community need uh, for everybody to kind of have skin in the game, so to speak, uh, and really try to work through this as as a uh, as a society to really kind of get things in a better place here for in the foreseeable future. Absolutely. So on a, a on a personal level, um, I know that uh, um, you're a mom. Um, you're you're incredibly dedicated to your patients. Um, we have a lot of our members are are in the same boat where they're they're at the hospital, they're at their office, they're exposed to um, kind of some of the unknowns right now. Uh, it has to be incredibly stressful. What type of things are you doing um, to try to to watch for your own health, watch for your family's health. You, you mentioned the shortage of PPEs earlier. Uh, I think the indications are that's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Um, so, so how are you dealing with all of that right now? So several things uh, on that regard. Um, as you're probably aware, they did uh, loosen the guidelines somewhat about exposure. So there was a situation where basically anyone, healthcare provider-wise, that had any potentially high-risk exposure automatically went into a 14-day quarantine, and, and we just can't quarantine everybody. Mm-hmm. The good news is, is over time, we feel very comfortable that this is more of a droplet-related issue than a airborne-related issue. When we do have aerosol- aerosolization procedures, nebulized medicine treatments, bronchoscopies, intubation procedures, suctioning, certain surgical procedures, those do require N95 respirators and airborne isolation. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, we can sort of use our, our surgical masks and available PPE, including eyewear or a splash guard of some sort protecting our eyes and mucous membranes as a reasonable strategy. Mm-hmm. A general rule I give my outpatient providers, since there's so much screening at this point, where pretty much every patient that presents with a fever or travel history or symptoms uh, like a flu-like syndrome, almost everybody is masking immediately or being offered a mask immediately. Okay. As a general rule, as a provider, If the patient's wearing a mask, you should have a mask on. So if you ever find yourself walking into a room and you're not masked for some reason and the patient is masked, that should be the first indication that that patient was given that mask or is wearing that mask because they are potentially sick and you should have a mask on as well. Simply having that source control with the patient wearing a mask and if you have a mask on as a provider is going to drastically limit your exposure to uh, the potential of a droplet pathogen. The other issue is on in the inpatient setting. In the inpatient setting, um, it's it's a little bit like a war zone at some of these mm-hmm. hospitals with mm-hmm. the amount of uh, of activity. Entire floors being closed off and turned into makeshift COVID units. Um, you know, volunteer the nurses are just outstanding volunteering and stepping up to take care of the sickest patients. Um, Physician-wise, we've uh, there's been been sort of a turn to wearing scrubs again, and the white coats are left on the hanger. We don't mm-hmm. want to bring that into these environments. Um, I've been wearing scrubs exclusively, and my you know my dirty clothes, so to speak, are not even brought into the house. I don't want to expose right. my family to that. And then you just you know the hand washing, hand hygiene. There are um, donning and doffing procedures that are usually posted throughout the hospital, and you know the emphasis on the hand hygiene and the hand sanitize procedures that we need to, to keep doing in order to have the best crack at not spreading this thing going in and out of these healthcare settings. Right, right. Well, thank you. Um, you know, one of the other things, as you know, there's information all over the place. Uh, some of the information uh, is, is in no way accurate. And, and right now in the time that we find ourselves, I think uh, misinformation can really, can really be deadly. Um, 
the Centers for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, which resources would you recommend that a physician go to right now so that they can get the most current, up-to-date information? Uh, because like we said, it is changing by the day in some instances. Absolutely. I, and, and by the state as well, there are certain states that are so heavily hit, like California mm-hmm. and Washington, New York, Chicago, Illinois area. You know, we have a lot of cases. Our friends in Michigan are having a ramp up of cases. So I definitely recommend people go to their state health department pages to kind of keep in touch with what's going on in their state. That's very, very important. And I also recommend that um, the, the CDC website has been our go-to um, as well to try and get that most up-to-date information. A lot of times when you go to your state websites, mm-hmm. they do have opportunities where you can sign up for emails and things like that to get almost a daily correspondence as to what you might, you know, what might be going on in the state and what might be very important. That's a, that's a great idea, and that uh, is up to date uh, again uh, on a regular basis. So, really, uh, I think what you're suggesting is um, uh, refer to your state Department of Health for some initial direct information related to uh, the situation where you're practicing. Is that? fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. State to state, there's going to be differences. One thing we have been able to look to um, is some of the states, if you happen to be in a state where there's relatively few cases, but you have a legitimate concern of what is to come, um, you can kind of look to the, you can look to the state departments, uh, the state health departments and states that have kind of seen more than you have so far. And uh, you can kind of get guidance as to what they're doing in those states and and extrapolate from that. We've taken a lot of leads from Washington um, and, and seeing what was done there in order to best have a clinical best practice in Illinois. Excellent. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, I know, again, your time is very, very tight right now as you're responding to this as we speak. Is there any advice that you would like the general public to know about this? Any thoughts that you wanted to leave us with or anything you wanted to tell the, the regular uh, practicing physician out there that maybe uh, is not an infectious disease doc, but is on the front line? Anything you'd like to comment on that? So I would say the the biggest take-homes for me um, are are going to be for for patients out there, wash your hands, wash them a lot. Uh Social distancing is the real deal. Um, This is something that, you know, we can all do our part to hunker down for the next several weeks and see if we can really put a a damper on this thing. And that would be a wonderful way of, of kind of coming together and doing the best we can. Help your neighbors. Make sure that everyone's okay, especially if you have vulnerable neighbors, seniors um, around there. Get your flu shots. It's not too late to still get flu shots. And the, the issue with influenza, um, a lot of times we are screening for, for influenza as it presents similarly. Currently in my practice alone where, you know, we have a very large multi-specialty group, so we're testing, you know, hundreds of patients a day. We're still seeing a flu positive rate of around 18%, and we're seeing a COVID positive rate that's about 15%. So we're actually seeing more flu right now than we are COVID. Um, and that's important that we, we need to remember to get our flu vaccine. And, and stay on top of things. For providers who are going to have very, they're managing as much anxiety as they are managing right. uh, Ill, Ill persons right now, right. it is okay to give that reassurance that if you have mild symptoms, you do not have a high-risk encounter, you are not immunocompromised, and do not have comorbidities, you are less likely to have one of the poorer outcomes from this virus. And it is okay to stay home. Uh, It is okay to continue monitoring and managing your symptoms at home. We don't necessarily need a test to 
to confirm that. Yes, we would love to expand testing because we would love to get a true number here as how many tests are, or how many patients are truly positive so we can sort of get a true death rate, get a true uh, morbidity rate and right. add to the denominator. However, at this time, we still have limited testing supplies and it is reasonable to, to allow these patients to stay home and, and just observe their symptoms. Um, testing should not be done for the most part on anyone who is asymptomatic and testing should not be done and, and is not indicated to quote unquote clear someone to return to work outside of the healthcare setting possibly. But this is not the number of calls we get from people saying, um, I just got back from New York and my, my boss wants me to have a test before I can return back. That, that's not the purpose of this test and that's not how we're going to use it. For those who have minimum, minimal symptoms, we are currently using a guideline of, I presume you have COVID, you're home, we haven't tested you, your right. symptoms are minimal. The guideline we're using is you should stay home for seven days from the onset of symptoms and at least 72 hours fever-free, whichever is longer. And that correlates fairly well with these mild cases clearing the viremic state and being able to get people back home. So using that guideline, that is something that for our mild cases, the providers can offer to patients so they kind of have a timeline of when they can return to work. Excellent. That's really helpful. You have um, 18% of uh, patients right now are presenting with uh, uh, are flu positive versus 15% roughly that are COVID-19 positive. Is that correct? That's correct. That's what we're seeing in our organization currently as of today. So can you talk a little bit about the difference in presentation of COVID-19 versus the, the seasonal flu? So obviously there's there's overlap. Um, um, many patients present with that that classic fever and cough. The COVID patients that are truly positive on our end, we're seeing some significant fevers, not just the low grade stuff, the 99 to 100. We are seeing patients that have 101, 102, 103 degree fevers, not otherwise explained. Oh, okay. um, the cough is there, and then the classic, you know, 30 or 40 percent are presenting with shortness of breath, but that that tightness in their chest where they feel like they they have to work to take in a deep breath. Okay. So those things are a little bit different. Influenza um, typically has those body aches, headaches, fatigue, all of that absolutely can be present in COVID as well, but it's, it's more of a hallmark for influenza. As time goes on, we are seeing some atypical presentations. Um, we do know that there could be some GI discomfort and GI, and GI distress that can happen right. with COVID as well. And um, we have a, a, a certain small percentage of cases that present with conjunctivitis too. Oh, okay. um, but by by far and away, the biggest presenting symptoms that we have are the higher fevers. At least 100.4 is a cutoff for, for us. Okay. And the, the shortness of breath and the dry cough, this is not typically a productive cough. Those sort of push us toward COVID as a working diagnosis, in addition to high-risk travel, um, in addition to a known close contact. This does not include, I was in contact with someone who was in contact right. who is positive. And it does not include... I got a letter that someone in my workspace is positive, but right. I don't know who. It's that known close contact. Okay, that's great. Uh, thank you very much for uh, delineating that a little bit. Um, are there any final thoughts you'd want to leave? I think uh, at, the, at this point, here we are two months into this thing, um, we need to continue to work together. We need to not panic, but we need to take this seriously. Um, this too shall pass. Um, the vast majority uh, who become infected with this, and it could be a significant percentage of the population, will have mild 
symptoms only, and they will, um, you know, get through this. We need to work together, and we need to focus on the positives in a time like this. Um, resist the desire to hoard supplies and, and hoard uh, home uh, home goods and essentials. Mm-hmm. Uh, get only what you need, and there's absolutely no need for you to have medical supplies, masks, um, and, and other N95s in your home for any type of doomsday preparation. We need those things on the front lines. Excellent. Dr. Tormina, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, I also want to take this opportunity to thank the other physicians, the first responders, the nurses, everybody that's on the front line dealing with with this right now. Uh, There is so much uncertainty, so much anxiety, um, and and the the level at which you're handling this is superb. And um, again, cannot thank you enough for all that you're doing. Uh, It really means a lot to know that we have physicians like you out there taking care of us. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, <laughs> thank you for having me, Tim. This is it's it's great to be able to talk to someone and and relay the the positive information, what we do know, and then to try and decrease that fear and focus on focus our energies on what we're going to do to beat this thing. Thanks again, uh, and to you, our listener, I want to thank you for joining us. Until the next time, uh, be safe and take care. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us today. For additional information on this podcast or other services provided by the ASOI, you can reach the ASOI president directly by email at president at org. I can also be reached by email at tmcnichol at org, or you can learn more by visiting us at our website at org. Thanks again for joining us. Until our next podcast, be well.